from the Gospel of Mark. As Jesus was setting out on a journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. The man said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When the man heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Then Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were perplexed at these words, but Jesus said to them again, Children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. They were greatly astounded and said to one another, Then who possibly can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, For mortals, it is impossible. But for God, it is not. For God, all things are possible. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Dearest God, we are here, and not just us alone, but in sanctuaries across your world at this moment, there are sermons being preached and sermons being heard, and we do pray that the words and thoughts being shared and the meditations of the hearts of those who hear them are moved in ways that move us to your will and are indeed pleasing to you. With the whole church, we say amen. Amen. So, about a month ago, one of you, perhaps, placed this anonymous prayer card in the offering plate, addressed to me. And on the card, you didn't ask for prayers about an upcoming surgery or an prayers for an ailing friend or a relationship in crisis. Instead, you asked me to answer some pretty hard questions. Questions that strike to the heart of what it means to be a person of faith today in the church. I want to share what I think is pretty much the central question, the one that relates most vividly to the text today. Whoever you are, or maybe it was somebody else, but somebody wrote, I don't want to give up all 
Wander the world and proclaim the word. What is the meaning of this calling? What is the meaning of discipleship in this modern world? This question, which came from one of us, belongs to all of us, really, at least a great many of us. For who among us truly wants to lay aside all of our treasure and wealth, leaving family, security, and stability behind so that we may wander the earth proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ? Now, some of us in this life have, to the letter, accepted this call. But for many of us, it is hard to fathom making such a departure. And yet, at the same time, there's a part of us that cannot completely leave behind this nagging sense that the journey that Jesus invites in this passage is just what discipleship means. That this is the ideal against which true faith is measured. Which is why we would ask a question like the one on this card. Now, in our passage this morning, Jesus tells a prosperous man to do what he must do to inherit eternal life. We've heard it and hear it again. Go, he said, sell what you own, give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. The commandment is clear, unambiguous, and at least one of us wants to know if that same command is clearly meant for us as well. The good news is, is I have an easy answer. No. We do not need to give 100% of our money to the poor. To be right with God, to earn heavenly favor, we must only increase our giving to the church 7.5%. Just to throw a number out at the top of my head. (laughs) At least so saith the stewardship committee, as we indeed embark to give to grow, the theme for this year's campaign. If only the answer were that easy. If only the sacrifice were that minimally demanding as compared with what is really being asked in this text. So I want to take some time, I want to try to answer the question and outline, at least initially, what are some of the good reasons that we might be able to say, no, this is not the claim that Jesus is making on 100% of our talents and treasure. If the goal, first of all, is helping people, of making a difference in the world, One could argue it's bad economic policy. If Bill and Melinda Gates suddenly sold everything they owned and donated the proceeds to the United Way, yes, that would be an amazing act of philanthropy, and it would no doubt significantly help many people right now. But with no funds left to leverage or invest for future income, the Gates could not help a single person beyond that initial act of generosity. 
one cannot be generous with money unless one has money with which to be generous. Arguably, it's not good stewardship. We might also make some scriptural arguments against this commandment that Jesus makes. For one thing, we can note that Jesus is often speaking in an exaggerated way, or at least we hope. He tells crowds that if your hand is causing you to stumble, cut it off. If your eye is causing you to stumble, cut it off. And if indeed the body, as Paul writes later, is the temple of the living God, then we surely cannot be called to mutilate that temple. This notion of giving it all away, we could rightly argue, is a figure of speech, holy hyperbole, Jesus uses to make a larger point. We also know that biblical studies and biblical scholars are in agreement that Jesus and the gospel writers who wrote about him had an apocalyptic mind view. With the occupying forces of Rome ruling in Israel, many hoped that the age in which they lived would soon be passing away, totally altering the balance of power and overturning the tables of what's valuable and necessary and what is not. So to those preaching this apocalyptic vision, an excess of Roman coins would be superfluous, perhaps even dangerous, for those entering the new economy of God. But as modern readers who live in a world where we can chart every canyon in Pluto and find water on Mars, have little reason to expect the end times to happen anytime soon. For the time being, for the world in which we live now, money is necessary and important. Indeed, we have college loans and mortgages, families to feed, prescriptions to fill, aging parents and long-term care to secure. We need our money, and not just for others, not just for ourselves, but for others, those who depend on us. And this leads to perhaps the strongest, most heartfelt, visceral reaction we have to what Jesus tells this man to do. If we were to give away all of our possessions, all of our money, it would increase poverty. Because now we would be poorer too. We would become the refugee packed in a boat. We would become the unkempt man on a cardboard box. We would be the hungry client averting his eyes at the soup kitchen instead of the one filling the bowls on the other side of the counter. To do what Jesus directs this man to do is on so many levels irrational, irresponsible, and inimical, inimical, oh man, I had that word in practice, inimical, as in a threat to, contrary to, hostile to, the life that we want or the life that we feel we should live in this world to make a difference. But the question of this text, the question on this card, and I believe the question we must ask is whether or not the life that Jesus commends to this man is in fact the life that saves, as crazy as it may seem. Those of us who live here in town in Alexandria, if you've ever been to Ben Ben Bremen Park, the man-made ponds 
uh, and the sidewalks that go around them, you'll see a sign that says, please do not feed wildlife. And there are three things about that sign that I think are notable relative to our discussion this morning. First, the sign is so polite. (laughs) Its letters are bold red and insistent, but its message conveys an appeal more than a commandment. Please don't sounds very different than thou shalt not. Second, I wonder what kind of wildlife lives in a manicured park where the gravest threat to animal existence is a toddler sharing her cracker. That doesn't seem so wild to me. And lastly, I was struck by the Spanish translation at the bottom of the sign. Before I share it, I want to tell you that I promised myself that I would never again try to speak a foreign language from this pulpit. The first time, and the last time that I did, was at the memorial service of Micheline Williams, uh, a dear woman from France. Uh, And in her service, she had her sister, who flew in from some countryside somewhere far from Paris, someone who spoke not a lick of English. And in my benevolence and in my caring heart, I wanted to say something in the eulogy that would speak to her, that would give her comfort. And it turns out that instead of saying God is love, I told her that God is death. (laughs) Just a little bit off. But today I really do need to do some Spanish. We'll see how it goes. The sign in Spanish said, Por favor, no alimente vida salvaje. And it was the vida salvaje that really caught my eye. Because I couldn't help but notice that the word in Spanish for wild, salvaje, has the same root as our word salvation, which is a word that uses the same root in Latin that means to save. So if you're with me, you could join me in wondering whether the truly wild life that Jesus offers to this man is the saving life he wishes for all of us to have. That Jesus wants to move that man and move us away from our manicured landscapes, beyond the artificial safety of the lives that we busily construct and so fiercely defend, so that we may experience the heavenly life that is to come in this world. Now the center of this text, and I'm glad Casey emphasized this with the children, is the moment where Jesus stops, and before making this big demand to the man, looks at him, and Mark tells us he loved him. It's the only time in Mark where Jesus does this, where he is said to love someone in that way. 
And it's important for us to see that because it tells us that what Jesus says to him next, what he demands of him, the ideal he sets forth before him, is not meant as a punishment, a judgment, a condemnation, but a loving invitation. The loving glance at the center of this text is the strong foundation of Christ's appeal. But it asks the man to die to himself, and there is no harder thing to do. And yet there is no greater reason than salvation to do it. Someone forwarded forwarded me a blog post this week uh, by a congregational pastor named Dwight Walter, whose blog entry entitled Queen Jesus describes a moment where he, not Jesus, the pastor, is driving uh, up his driveway and notices a swarm of bees hovering over the chain link fence. And more than a little bit of afraid of being stung, he Googles bee swarm on his phone and he learns that that swarm is going nowhere until the queen bee tells the bees it's time to go to the new hive. He takes that information with him as he drives to visit an older man dying in a nursing home. A man who, according to the nurse there, said was said to be suffering, unwilling to let go. Walter, the pastor, found him writhing on his bed in fear. And so he sat on the side and looked at the man and said, I know about you. You are a wonderful father, veteran, patriot, and citizen. I know that you are also a fighter. And you may be, and you may continue clinging to this part of your life. But I ask you to consider the possibility that God has prepared a new home for you. Something far better than this awaits once you move on. The pastor drove home and noticed that the bees were gone. The queen had called them to a new place. And presumably not too long thereafter, the old man was called away as well. So also was the rich man in Mark, who grieved his many possessions, who clung to his manicured life when the wild and saving life of heaven was being prepared for him. So then, really, what, what is the answer? Are we to answer this command if we are to journey with Jesus? Jesus does say later, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. This troubled the disciples and it troubles us. But we also know that whenever we've sent, as a church, youth or adult mission teams to places like Kenya or Haiti, they invariably invariably come back saying how remarkable it was to see the spiritual wealth of those who were materially poor a wealth of spirituality that they didn't see so vividly here at home. Maybe this is why Jesus wants the rich man to be poor, to have that greater wealth, to walk with those who walk most closely with him. Last Monday, a few of our members served at 
the bag lunch program, as they do most months, where they serve meals to those who need a helping hand. And on one particular day, last Monday, someone came, a young man with one leg, using his crutches. He was a regular at the program, but for whatever reason, he hadn't been there for a few weeks. So our members asked him or said to him when he approached, they said, we miss you. He stopped short and looked at them and with tears in his eyes and a smile on his face said, you missed me? Yes, we miss him. Perhaps we miss him because like the rich man, we cling too tightly to our treasures, to that which we value more than our life with God. Yes, we miss him, perhaps because we choose safety and security over the wildness of Christ's saving life, or because we allow our offering plates and what we choose or choose not to put in them to shield us from the poor rather than enable us to live in solidarity with them. Perhaps we miss him most of all because we make this story in Mark more about this man's grief than Christ's loving gaze his desire and appeal to call and receive this man into new life, even if the passage seems like dying. We may not live up to the ideal that Jesus sets before us in this text. And it may grieve us that this ideal exists and that we will most certainly fail to meet it. But that grief, that feeling that there is something more being asked of us and more being given to us than we are willing or able to give and receive. This grief is itself part of the passage to eternal life. Mark tells us that the man, even though he grieved, did, did so doing exactly what Jesus asked, which is to say, go. Jesus sent him away, and he went, grieving, but he went. And Jesus, who made heaven sound like a club that no one can enter, promised in that man's absence that even the impossible things are possible for God. So if you are the one who wrote this card, or if you are one who shared its concern, perhaps you'll want to write another one. One that says, Patrick, try again. You didn't really answer the question. And that sounds right. I really don't have an easy or simple answer to this prayer card. But I do have a prayer. I have words attributed to St. Ignatius of Loyola that speaks what I believe Christ would have us pray as we encounter this text. Take, Lord... Receive all my liberty, my memory, my understanding, and my entire will. Take all that I have and possess. Thou hast given all to me, and to thee, O Lord, I will return it. All is thine. Dispose of it wholly according to thy will. Give me thy love and thy grace, for this is sufficient for me. 
As we celebrate our 75 years of Westminster and as we consider the life of discipleship and mission that we seek to live and embody, may we live and move through that prayer. May we be drawn eventually to Christ's appeal for us to know his impossible vida salvaje, to know the wildlife of salvation that is made possible for us by God. A God who is not death. A God who is love. Amen.